Hi, I'm Laura Schultz. This is Starting to Feel Better, a podcast about healing from trauma, violence, and abuse. For the past 10 years, I've been an advocate, educator, and social worker, focusing on trauma-responsive care and victim or survivor-centered advocacy. Music is another important part of my life. Lately, I've been especially interested in the intersection between creativity and healing from trauma. In this podcast, I intend to further explore using the creative arts as a method of healing with guests who work in these fields. This is a podcast about connecting with each other and embracing all of the parts of ourselves. It's about recognizing, as Carl Jung said, that we are not what happened to us. We are who we choose to become. Welcome to Starting to Feel Better. My name is Jeff Brown. And I am a gay uh, Jamaican male immigrant um, and son and um, friend, (laughs) Um, psychology educator, researcher, um, practitioner, and adult figure skater, (laughs) you know, (laughs) a black man, um, multiracial man, Um, you know, not, I'm an immigrant, but also my grandfather was an immigrant to Jamaica from China. So immigration just kind of like runs down the family lines, um, a descendant of slaves. Yeah, I would say those are sort of the first thing that comes to mind. But, um, you know, I like that you talked about these identifiers because it's, um, I think in our very Western society, we um, dropped that you know, we drop that profession, like you are your profession or your your work. And um, certainly, I think for a lot of us, we spend a lot of time and pour a lot of passion into our work. But in light of not just recent events, but the events that have been happening to Black people um, in this country for years and decades and centuries, <laughs> um, really, I would say that in such a racialized country, um, your your race is like... I guess, hoisted upon you as this like initial, (laughs) um, very externally recognized identity, but it also interacts with like your internal um, sense of who you are, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, I could go on and on about (laughs) about that, but um, kind of long story short, um, I would say those are sort of like, sort of the main axes of identity that popped to my mind first. Mm -hmm. Especially as a white woman and a lot of white folks who have been on the podcast, we, our race becomes invisible because it is, because it is privileged. So sure. 100%. Yeah. So that doesn't often come up with a lot of folks. Like I am a white woman who, right. 100%. I mean, I teach our diversity class in the school psych program and it's sort of cliche, but um, my white students, they, you know, all say, um, almost all of them will say, oh my gosh, like, oh, I have no culture or, oh, mm-hmm. I, this is the first time I had to think about like, <laughs> oh, I'm a, I just think of myself as a person, mm-hmm. you know, whereas um, certainly otherwise that's not how, um, that's not how the uh, people of color in this society kind of mm-hmm. had to view themselves. Like you said, and I absolutely agree that our profession doesn't define everything about who we are. 
-hmm. On the heels of that, I do wonder mm -hmm. what drew you to teaching in the school psychology program. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think you know, kind of a kind of a long story. I would say that um, you know, my very like distal explanation of this, like like I've always loved school and um, you know, line up my stuffed animals and like teach them. <laughs> you know, we can go back further in my lineage. My dad's father was yeah, a headmaster, a principal of um, a high school. You know, I really can't necessarily claim that it's this self-made um, thing because <laughs> certainly like, you know, and you know, today's Juneteenth. I think that a mm -hmm. lot of, um, a lot of us, and when I say us, I mean, African descended um, folks, um, like, there comes a point when we realize that we're really standing on the shoulders of all our ancestors mm -hmm. um, and all, all that they've built. Um, and so, you know, we'll acknowledge that this was probably a long time in the making. And um, my grandfather, who I'm named after, actually, um, he I, I probably inherited some sense of um, like wanting to be in education. And, um, you know, I've always done things like tutoring and, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and stuff like that. I would say that, you know, in college, I um, got really attracted to things like research. Like all throughout grad school, I knew that more of like an academic route is what I wanted to do. Because um, I really loved the research part of it. But I also really loved interacting uh, with folks and, you know, teaching them in such a way that like I could see their growth throughout a given semester. And that's something that I really enjoyed as well. You know, I would say that it is somewhat random <laughs> that I ended up here at Minnesota State University Mankato. Like I had no roots in Minnesota. I'd never been to the state <laughs> um, like before I came from my job interview. So I saw this job posting <laughs> and I applied for it and I liked it when I visited. And um, I liked that it was this growing program, but I knew I wanted to be a professor and go the academic route. Yeah, something just, something just sort of clicked, I guess. Yeah, so definitely something that you were drawn to mm -hmm. while also recognizing that it's something that has been a part of your family. Exactly, exactly, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So on the podcast, we've talked a lot mm -hmm. about individual trauma. We've mm -hmm. kind of talked about big T trauma, little t trauma, trauma as a, a definition, an event that uh, overwhelms one's ability to cope We've yeah. talked a little bit, but less about collective trauma. Mm -hmm. And today I really wanted to explore the collective trauma caused mm -hmm. by chronic racial stress. Mm -hmm. And recently I attended a recording of a webinar by Dr. Okay. Monica Williams from the mm -hmm. University of Louisville. This was called The Role of Racial Trauma in Psychotherapy. And she kind of broke down the ways that racism is traumatic. She yeah. says racist incidents in and of themselves are traumatic, that individuals who experience them feel disempowered or powerless. The event itself is unpredictable and uncontrollable. The experiences might be challenged or ridiculed by others. And other folks might not have space to or willingness to process because people aren't willing to believe them. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if there were any pieces that you would add to that breakdown of mm -hmm. how and why racism is traumatic. Right. Um, so I think that um, definition that sort of, sort of spiel that you um, went through really like 
hits the nail on the head, <laughs> you know? And especially, like, we think of trauma as some, and you probably talked about it before on the show, a trauma is uh, commonly conceptualized as some sort of, like, severe uh, event <laughs> that happens in someone's life, right? A crash or, um, you know, an incident of violence or uh, this big event that happens. Um, and it's not necessarily how we conceptualize A, common racial trauma, and B, collective racial trauma, right? Obviously, the incidents of police violence, for example, like that could, that easily will fit into sort of like that classical definition of this um, horrendous event that happens, these horrendous events that happen Mm -hmm. um, to an individual. You either witness that, which is traumatic, or it happens to you, which is traumatic. When I was a grad student um, in New Orleans, I remember it was a night of... um, Mardi Gras, but this was sort of like after all the festivities, and I went back to um, my neighborhood, which was off the parade routes and like very quiet and kind of close to campus. And uh, you know, we'd kind of had um, enough of the the partying and the celebrating. And um, I went back and was just taking a stroll around my neighborhood with a friend of mine who'd come to visit. So he's white, and we were just walking <laughs> around our neighborhood, and. Um, we we saw this car starting to trail us, this sort of um, nondescript car starting to trail us. And, you know, I said to him, there's this car following us. Like, I think we should, like, head home kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so we sped up, <laughs> and this car would kept following us, kept following us. And I said, okay, run. Yeah. Um, so we started running, and we had just gotten right to the house next to us. And the car had caught up to us. And this man came out of the car. It, it turned, out, he turned out he was a cop. And um, he, um, you know, told, actually just me, didn't tell my friend, to put, the hands on, to put my hands on the car and started questioning me and said, you know, why, was, why were we walking there to the school and like all these things. Um, and so anyway, long story short, and I would say that like, as a side note, he was a, he was a black policeman, but like, mm-hmm. of course, the system is um, white supremacist, so like he's upholding that, right? But anyway, so like I would think about that, and so it's not just like this academic topic for me, right? Like, it's right, were to happen, so I would conceptualize that more as an like some sort of like severe incident, right? <laughs> um, that sort of classical definition. I don't think I was necessarily like traumatized, like mm-hmm. like in a DSM way from that event, but it certainly could have, right? If I was younger. <laughs> um, if my self-concept was maybe slightly different, if I, I had been, I think mostly prepared, be prepared for that incident to happen, but I wasn't, you know, because I, I had a friend in the program who's this tall black male and who had, he told me he was questioned by the cop several times. So it kind of, it was kind of like preparing in the back of my mind, like what to do and, and say, you know, I'm a Tulane student, here's my ID and blah, blah, blah. Right. So even though I would say that was a potentially like traumatic, like individual event, right, that was um, race based. But then you think about um, a couple other types of events. Right. So like like I'm just like one person, (laughs) um, but say you are a black woman who, you know, this happens to your son. This happens to your brother, <laughs> this happens mm-hmm. to your neighbors. And to paint it in like very broad strokes, communities of color, again, I don't want to make like super generalizations, but like classically communities of color um, tend to be a little bit more communal, um, African descended um, folks tend to be a little bit more um, communal. 
So, um, you know, it happens to the family across the street. It happens to your friend of a friend who lives, you know, across the country. And it's not just like this event didn't happen to you anymore, but it's this like sum total of all of these events. And, and it's like you're witnessing it, right, without actually witnessing it. But it's not only you, right? It is your your sister also has these stories. And mm-hmm. like, it's not just that this event happened to you or it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes this like like system. It almost like, I'm picturing it in my mind, like this big sort of like net that like these pieces all get like pieced together, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost tough to describe. Like I can't put it into words. Like if I could draw really well, like I would maybe <laughs> like make a painting out of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's like one way. I think the second way is the small incidents that like build up over time. So like the microaggressions, right? Mm-hmm. And just to give a very brief sort of recap about what a microaggression is, uh, you are a person of color and um, someone, they could be from the majority group or they couldn't um, make a comment to you, which may or may not be perceived as motivated by your race, right? So going back to my um, time at an elite university for undergrad, you know, people implying that you got in because you were a racial minority, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Or stuff like that. These little jabs, they, again, no like one comment is going to maybe traumatize the average person, but Mm -hmm. it is the sum total of all of these. And Mm -hmm. um, it's not just you again, right? It happens to your neighbor, it happens to Mm -hmm. your sister, it happens to all your family, right? And if I were to get a little bit more academic, the way people experience like racial identity, like especially minority racial identity, again, it's not just like, I am this like individual, like, because when you say, you're black. You're like it's not like this unique thing, right? Like you have this whole community, and it's very it's very salient that you are being oppressed as a group, mm-hmm. right? That's why when um, black people like, have you heard about the nod? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like um, it was when two black people who don't know each other kind of like um, acknowledge them, <laughs> acknowledge each other in the street. It's sort of like the subtle acknowledgement that um, like we're each fighting and we're each surviving, right. and then like. Place that we're not was not built for us. It's that sort of collective, very hard, very hard to describe. But it's it's the sum total of all of these things spanned across spanned across communities and also like spanned across generations for sure. It's cumulative in a in a couple of different ways. Yeah, like exactly. Exactly. Everyone is experiencing mm-hmm. microaggressions as well as bigger traumas related to racism but then there's also those microaggressions kind of being those thousand million tiny cuts (laughs) over and over again that Mm -hmm. can have ultimately a very traumatic effect on folks 100 percent, yeah and that kind of leads me into this next question that i have for you which is based on the article that you co-wrote, School-Based Interventions for Reducing Youth's Racial and Ethnic Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And based on some of what you explore in this article, I wondered if you might share some examples of lived experiences of racial and ethnic prejudice and discrimination that youth of color encounter in schools. 
so just in relation to that study, that same, those same co-authors, we just, we're doing, um, we're in, in the progress of doing one more study asking about, asking like from school psychologist perspectives, like what sort of like incidents of racial discrimination mm-hmm. um, students face. And I, um, I'm also doing analyzing data from a current study that looked, um, looked at that more qualitatively, asking people to talk about um, their roles. And so, mm-hmm. but, you know, also having like worked in a majority of black schools, like I've seen some of this as well. I would say that like we see some of the things that sort of make the news. So like, um, you know, there was that incident in Owatana, I think a couple of years ago where it was um, like a racial epithet that was um, scrawled um, somewhere on the wall. I don't specifically remember um, the exact nature of the incident. So we see, we see things like that, but I mean, if we go to teenagers and maybe less focusing less on like elementary schools and more on like middle and high schools, like teenagers are going through this like very transitional time developmentally, right? And if we all think back to our high school, (laughs) our middle school experiences, what happens a lot is this um, wanting to fit in, (laughs) right? Um, But facing probably a lot of barriers to fitting in and us looking inward and saying like, oh, what is wrong with me that I can't? why I'm, I can't fit in or why I'm not popular or why I'm being bullied. So adding a racial element on top of that, right? It's, we can like sort of overlay it and see. It looks like anything from um, a black girl in a majority white high school being teased about her hair, right? Or it could look like boy, um, black boy. And this is actually stretches down to elementary school as well, um, being more likely to be um, evaluated for um, mm-hmm. emotional behavior disorder, right? right. Um, so we see institutional ways, but we also see sort of more like interpersonal ways. And what is coming up a lot in my current study are things like what happens whenever these high profile cases of like, oh, a student uh, dies by suicide due to bullying. I would say that part of the reaction from um, a majority culture, or white white people specifically, um, but also other people, is like, oh, everyone gets bullied in high school. It's just like, mm. right? Kind of going back to the question, the racial element, like not acknowledging that racial element also like erases that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, there is actually like this additional element when race is a part of it or when sexuality is a part of it, right? Um, specifically or gender identity. Mm-hmm. So kind of like we, how we see for LGBTQ um, kids, there are all these stats about how, um, you know, they're way more likely to have suicidal ideation, like all these things. Um, well, you know, when it's part of your identity, um, <laughs> like that, when that is, may or may not be a reason why you're being bullied or if you don't, or not fitting in exactly, mm-hmm. um, then like, you know, that really like gets you in a different way than, mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, you were just a part of the majority culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, even in the data that um, we just collected more recently, we were seeing a lot of things like sometimes um, our ethnic identity helped to, um, or my racial identity helped me connect to others like me. Mm-hmm. Or we see some people saying things like, you know, I didn't fit in because there was no, there were no other people um, at my high school who were the same race as me mm-hmm. um, and things like that. I would say part of it's institutional, part of it's like policy because mm-hmm. these policies are not being formed like with culturally competent, <laughs> like in culturally competent ways, right. um, especially majority white schools. Like they are 
um, formed around the white middle class standard and everyone has to conform to that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a non-majority member and you're not meeting that standard, then you're sort of labeled defiant or difficult or, or whatnot. And that can be, that could be extra, I would say difficult for a kid still going, still developing, you know, whereas if you are maybe, um, a member of the majority population, you're given all these second chances, you are, you know, maybe you're labeled as quirky <laughs> or something or, or, or something else like that. So there, so again, one is institutional, but B, there's also this like interpersonal part, part of it, you know? Um, I would say that um, it's not always possible that like students going through that um, at the time will necessarily like, um, so it depends on like what, um, you know, like racial identity like stage they're in, but they may not experience what's going through as like due to their race. They may or may not, appraise the incidents differently when they get older (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. what I mean right so so there's also that so these experiences that youth of color um, may come up against can be individual they can be institutional oftentimes they're both especially in majority white institutions Mm -hmm. and then those experiences really affect school and mental health outcomes for youth of color And that can come through, especially in, as you talked about on the webinar and in the article, it can come Mm -hmm. through in diagnoses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. And labeling of behaviors. Labeling and and, yeah, whether in a super official capacity or just like, (laughs) you know, in a very informal way. Right kind of teachers talking about a student. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they talk to the student, parents talking about them, mm-hmm. like, you know, just um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. In that webinar, in the MNSU's African-American Affairs mm-hmm. webinar that was titled The Effects of Police Brutality and Racism on Black Students and Professionals in Education, I was really struck by your conversation about the way that experiencing, witnessing acts of violence puts bodies into a fight flight, especially mode, fight flight Mm -hmm. freeze, and how that Mm -hmm. mode can be good when it's necessary for our survival, but when it's long-term, when it's severe, it can be really, really harmful. So I wondered if you might speak a little bit more to the ways that chronic racial stress has a Mm -hmm. particularly painful effect on people Mm -hmm. of color. So in a couple of different ways, I would say that, um, you know, we could like, go to the neurobiology of it. And um, um, I would say that, um, you know, other folks who maybe concentrate on (laughs) neuroscience or neurobio could speak a little bit more to this, but, um, you know, the information is is out there. Um, So several studies, I mean, it's cortisol, right, is um, one of the stress hormones, or one of the hormones that are released when we're stressed. And there are multiple ways in which um, that hormone is detrimental to us if chronically chronically um, released. So um, everything from uh, heart disease, like um, cardiac disease is a major um, effect of it. And also things like um, increased um, body fat percentage, just kind of like those are like the physiological, more physiological effects. Mm-hmm. Um, they found um, genetic uh, differences like, like telomere length, Basically, so they can actually trace it down to a genetic level. Um, In black women specifically, the studies have been mostly done. But I would say that like in layman's layman's terms, just like chronic stress, just like (laughs) it it messes you up. Like 
you know, you're more likely to die early. You're more likely to get all these um, diseases. <laughs> um, it is just not necessarily, it's not a good thing for your health. Psychologically though, like I think we all can relate to not performing well when we are constantly stressed, of course, in the short term. And um, like you alluded to, um, you know, if we have a deadline to make and, you know, we're, and we're feeling stressed, it help us to like get it done. But if our everyday experience, if that's your chronic experience, I mean, think about these last, um, this last month and thinking, think about um, communities of color and um, black Americans specifically. Um, mm-hmm. Like that is a very big example of like, no one's meant to be stressed that for that long. Right. <laughs> um, and that, and that chronically, even if it's at, fairly if it, even if it's not at like the highest level you know psychologically it impairs you from just like doing your best job at work <laughs> about from being the best person mm-hmm. that you want to be I mean you know very few people would say they love being chronically stressed <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> you know we all have different tolerance we all have sort of different tolerance levels for it this can have effects as you said psychologically as well as um, physically on on physical health I am really interested, too, in when we're talking about trauma, I really value the way that folks prioritize exploring resiliency as well. Yeah, for sure. And so I wondered how you might define resiliency as it relates to this conversation. Yeah, and I really like that you um, bring that up, too. In fact, in a lot of my work and um, stuff like that, we actually... um, Actually, I won't, I won't even give myself credit. This is just the way I was trained as a scholar. Too often, scholarship on communities of color have been focusing on like the deficits, like we call it the deficit model. So we will say that Black children are high rates of X bad thing, or they are at risk, or um, race is a risk factor. <laughs> um, whereas like, you know, that could be seen as, like I get why how that came about, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you look one level deeper, that's sort of like this super big gaslighting thing, right? (laughs) Because it's like, because it's like, no, race isn't the risk factor. Racism is, you know? (laughs) And it's like, I forget who said that quote, but um, something about like, um, like, do you really want to be well adapted in to a society that's like really screwed up? (laughs) Yeah. It's It's like, wait, is who's, was really like, um, what, what's, what's the issue here, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I would say that some of the, before I even define resiliency, I would say that like some of the uh, resiliency, like the super popular um, resiliency literature of late, um, that has come, come under a little bit of fire as well. So like you think about the, the Duckworth, like the grit um, thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, um, when they talked about like, um, or they implied that kids in schools that underperformed, oh, these kids just need more grit, right? But it's like, um, <laughs> these kids have more grit than like, <laughs> than anyone. Like, yeah. no, that's, that's, that's not it. I would say like all that as a, um, all that as sort of like a, a preface, I would say that resiliency in general and how I've used it um, in my work is just the capacity to carry on. <laughs> like, in the, in the face of adversity or negative external events and things like that. And I would say that the concept of resiliency in and of itself, like it's, I would say it's neither, it's neutral. It's just like, it's just a thing, right? Sure. 
Um, but it's definitely like how we, I guess, characterize it or how we frame it that mm-hmm. could be either be really powerful or be really kind of problematic, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like you said, for example, if we're saying mm-hmm. students of color just need more grit and then right, they can exactly. develop resiliency. I look at my own students, um, <laughs> undergraduate students at um, Mankato, and this is like, this is not just like me saying this, I would say that this is just like in, in general, right? viewed from a certain frame um, have like so much resiliency because they are, you know, a lot of them are working full time. I really um, admire some of them, just the way they make, you know, they pay for their own education and they like mm-hmm. really make a lot of things work that a lot of kids that I went to college <laughs> with, like didn't have to worry about any of that. Right. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Mom and dad was like paying the whole way. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really, it's really about like how you frame it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, kind of whose experiences you're centering, how you're prioritizing. 100%, 100%. I wondered about ways that you might see art and creativity bolstering resiliency. So yeah, I think about this a lot too, uh, because in the debates over things like cultural appropriation that aren't really happening so much nowadays, but I would say like maybe three years ago, they were super, (laughs) like, they were super hot topic, right? Mm -hmm. Why is it that the majority culture will subjugate <laughs> the minority culture when, or minoritized populations when it is convenient? And mm-hmm. then, but then also take their stuff <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, when it's convenient, mm-hmm. convenient for them. Or when a white person wears a certain hairstyle, it's cool. But when a black person wears a certain hairstyle, it's quote unquote ghetto, right? Right. Like, unprofessional. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's unprofessional. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so extracted from that like debate and like how um, what I think about all the time when I heard those debates was like wow like look on the look on all this like beauty and culture that like have developed in minoritized populations over time mm-hmm. I mean I think about my own my own experience in Jamaica you know I was definitely very um, privileged growing up um, educationally and in terms of class I you know it's not like I worried about food on the table or or any of that. Um, but looking around like my country, you know, we have sort of a reputation like amongst each other, or there's just this acknowledgement that people sort of like hustle to get things done <laughs> and people mm-hmm. could trace it back uh, historically over the centuries over slavery or whatnot, or, or, or uh, colonialism, of course. But, you know, people do what they need to do. Um, people come up with all sorts of creative ways to make money, to make art, actually, also, like reggae music and dub. Um, mm-hmm. And how like how that was born out of, like, you know, we could stretch it back to centuries, but we, we could... I'm not a musicologist. I'm not a musicologist, but um, you could probably draw some squiggly lines back to slavery, right? Yeah. Um, and to think about, like, oh, we are this small, tiny country of three million people, but reggae is like this whole genre of music that which with this outsized influence. And uh, like, if you do deeper dives into some, to some sort of the lyrics, um, like, you know, they talk about the difficult kind of upbringings that they had, but mm-hmm. there's so much cleverness. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. just, so I would say, I think about it a lot in terms of that. I mean, like, I, you know, I hesitate to say that, you know, creativity is solely born out of struggle or mm-hmm. like oppression of some sort, but, you know, it makes one wonder, <laughs> like, it's, it's fascinating how uh, the things which were 
you know, I guess you could call them coping methods and like, I guess looking at the literature, that's um, all I could find as coping as a, our creativity, creative mm-hmm. um, pursuits as a coping method to trauma. You know, there's, there's some psychological literature on that about how that sort of like blooms into like individual and sort of collective um, creative endeavors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of the reoccurring themes around conversations about trauma recovery and creativity and art mm-hmm. have been um, that mindfulness is a really specific piece of art creation, especially when people are creating art for as kind of for the process instead of for the product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then also joy and flow state come mm-hmm. up a lot. So that sort of feeling of, you know, being non-judgmental in the moment, being in the moment, being connected to one's body, mm-hmm. but then also this feeling of kind of expansiveness, like I'm creating something bigger than just the world yeah. around me. Yeah, yeah. And there's a real sense of joy and beauty that comes from that. And you can draw sort of like a straight line from that to things like collective action too, right? Mm-hmm. Like as individuals, is like, like we're sort of nothing. <laughs> um, right. You know, one person out in the streets is not going to do anything, but we need individuals to all take this collective action. And sometimes it can be out of a sense of like, oh, I'm doing something that's like way bigger than myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm part of something and that feels really expansive because it is, it has become expansive as part of the whole. So kind of coming back to that, um, those feelings of feeling connected, feeling balanced, Mm -hmm. um, the ability to enter a flow state, to find mindfulness and joy. Mm -hmm. I wondered for you, if there were specific activities or um, things that you're engaging in right now during what is a difficult time um, that that are, are resonating, that are working for you? Yeah, so as we sort of like briefly alluded to um, earlier, um, so I figure skate, um, and it's sort of a catch-22 because like ice is like less available during COVID. Right. <laughs> Lots available, um, but I would say that I've always been, I've always turned to more movement as my creative um, passion. Um, I danced in college and um, in grad school, I, I danced as well and to choreograph when I can. Um, and so that segued um, into figure skating for me. Um, I started th- three years ago, so mm-hmm. summer after my first year teaching here at Mankato. And I've been like a lifelong fan of, fan of figure skating, like a very obsessive um, fan. <laughs> um, and But I never tried it myself. And so um, I just took some group classes and, you know, that turned into, oh, I look kind of like this. And that turned into me skating like five times a week, you know, yeah. um, and having a coach and like all these things. And skating is has been a very interesting pursuit for me just because um, it is athletic, but it's also like, it's also, as you said, like this creative like process and it's also very mindful. So the athleticism and the artistry are sort of like more intertwined than I think um, people mm-hmm. might um, think. Because when people see skaters like on TV and they're, you know, even the person who comes like last at the Olympics, 
they're still like an extremely good skater. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, yeah. They're at the Olympics. They are, like, <laughs> they're, even the ones who don't qualify to the final are extremely good. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, um, and so, but they make it look so easy. They make it look like they're, flo- they're floating. It's, it's tough. Like it's, to look that sort of like graceful and careless, mm-hmm. it actually, just it's like the duck paddling underwater. It's mm-hmm. a lot of like core strength. It's a lot of like muscle. Um, and those people on TV are all like muscle. Like it's all, <laughs> you know, like it mm-hmm. actually a lot of toughness and athleticism. Um, so I think that's, so people may not realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also what people may not realize is that like, you know, the sort of narrative that when you watch skating, they'll give you is that, this person is either an athlete or an artist, right? Uh-huh. Um, but in order to unlock the artistry, um, kind of similar, um, like in painting, um, mm-hmm. I would imagine. I don't know if you paint at all or a little tiny <laughs> dabble. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. It's probably like it's probably similar in music. Um, mm-hmm. to unlock the artistry, you actually have to like have a lot of technique and build mm-hmm. it up, right? Right. Like, in, like you play guitar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like, it, right. You can, like, you can't write a beautiful guitar melody unless you're technically right, <laughs> right? Kinda, i don't know the instrument right exactly <laughs> yeah, you know mm-hmm. and obviously in i don't know if it's like this um you play on piano like a little bit a little more bit guitar but, than piano, but, mm-hmm. right but people will like divide pianists into like oh this person is like an artist or they're a technician right right yeah um, but like, to unlock the artistry you have to have be this like technically sound and i would say that it's sort of like this kind of cool thing for me that it is, you know, I've been finding, um, been able to like express myself, but in order to like really express myself, it takes a lot of work. Like it takes a lot of like day-to-day work, you know, I'll do off ice training, which I haven't been doing as much because, you know, COVID just like right. broke up and mm-hmm. I'm just like laying around and eating, but, um, mm-hmm. same. yeah, <laughs> um, <all> same. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's something very, um, there's something very satisfying about unlocking that creativity through a lot of like technical work. I mean, you think about like therapy, right? You see clients who, um, you know, unlock whatever it is, like, like exploration, like yeah. they're themselves. But in order to do all that, like it takes, it takes work, right? Like therapy's work. It's not just, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, so I can draw that parallel as well. I also like that you um, mentioned mindfulness because it's very, it's a very mindful activity in that, like, if you're not in the moment, then you will fall. Even if you're just doing an edge and, like, gliding around on one foot in a circle, you have to be in the present. Like, because yeah. if you're not, then you're going to, like, drift over to the wrong side of the blade and then, like, you're going to be wobbly, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, um, it's very therapeutic in that sense, especially during these last couple of weeks. I would say that, like, when I go on the ice, um, I would say that I'm able to really... Um, be in the moment for the most part mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah it's been this really beautiful outlet for me yeah sure. and I think about the way too that creative outlets like movement dance skating uh songwriting mm-hmm. and other art forms can be a way to kind of translate some of our experiences mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of the art form into mm-hmm. the art form mm-hmm sort of like this recurring theme that has come up again and again is that like we might not be able to like um it's not this bottom-up procedure where it's uh-huh. like um here are my experiences and like here right. I'm here is what I want to build <laughs> um, from it but sometimes it's like this we look back and it's like okay like this is <laughs> this is where it came from <laughs> right 
And then to kind of finish out our conversation, what is one thing that someone could do right now to begin to feel more grounded or centered or help them through an intense, unpleasant emotion? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I would say um, tap into the community. Um, I think that difficult times for many of us um, make us want to like retreat inward and um, kind of block everything out that's going on. And like, I think for different people that might be necessary, but I would say that like, you know, we're social animals, Um, you know, we're literally social. We weren't meant to be alone really introverted or extroverted like you know we need different degrees of um, socialization and so really tapping into your community whatever that is whether it means your athletic community if you play a sport or um, your artistic community if you are an artist or musician or um, you know your knitting community (laughs) you know I would say that tapping into that and like when you're ready, um, doing something with mm-hmm. with that community beneath the surface, that'll really remind you so much. It will tell you that there are others um, with you. There's other there are others supporting you, um, and not just others. Like there are other people who, um, you know, maybe different from you, but who maybe have something really beautiful in common with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that perspective about community. It's one that hasn't come up as much been a lot of individual um things that folk that folks can do so i really appreciate that i think that's really well yeah yeah bonus points yeah huge (laughs) thanks so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode of starting to feel better and i look forward to seeing you next week Intro and outro music was recorded by Goodnight Gold Dust. <laughs>